0: if you have a pew bible i'm actually gonna be reading out of the pew bible today so I'll, I'll help you with the page number exodus chapter 33 is on page 73 of these black hardcover pew bibles there's some soft cover ones out there i don't think the number the numbering is the same on that but on these hard covers page 73. Uh, in this passage of exodus the people of israel have messed up royally um, moses goes up on the mountain to talk to god and the people of israel start getting antsy and even start getting scared that maybe moses their leader at this time maybe he's died or maybe they're crazy for waiting all day for him to come down and they look to this kind of second in command uh, a priest named aaron and said hey you know what i think the moses guy is gone can you make for us a new god and he said sure uh, Just give me all your gold. We'll figure out something. So they give them all their gold. Uh, He melds for them and uh, forms a calf. And they all worship the calf in debauchery and drunkenness. And it's this horrible sight. They've messed up royally. Now, Moses goes down. He had been writing down the commandments of God on these tablets. And he's so angry that he breaks these tablets. And he starts telling them what's what. And he says, now now i got to go back up to God and intercede on behalf of you guys. But you need to repent because what you did was wrong. So Moses goes back up on the mountain, and he's talking to God, and he's saying, look, God, you've brought out these people. This is is your plan. Will you forgive them so you can continue your plan? And God, God says that he will forgive them, but Moses needs just a little bit more assurance than God's word. And I, and I know that that sounds like a, a little f- faithless, and we're not going to delve into that at all. But it, it's, it's this. Moses knows that what God has in store for the nation of Israel is for them to go out and to conquer lands and to live life set apart and be entirely different from the entire world. And if that's what God is expecting out of them, Moses just needs to know that he's following the right God. Moses says, look, if we're going to go out and we're going to do these crazy things that you've told us that we're going to do, you've got to come with us. You've got to come with us. God says, I'll come with you. And Moses says, well, if you don't come with us, I know you said you will, but if you don't come with us, we're going to be lost. We're going to be abandoned. We need you to come with us. And God says, I will. Moses says, I want to see your glory. Moses needs to, to visually witness the power of the God he's trusting and to whom he's trusting all of his family and all the people he knows, loves, and cares about. Before I read the passage, I want to, I want to point out this recurring theme of separation versus unity you see this this sin that israel committed it separated them from their god now the god who was once their their general their leader their protector now he's somebody that they have to repent to and hope to be let back into the fold with and moses says hey you know what thank you for forgiving us will you still go with us We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be abandoned. We don't want to be without you. We cannot be without you. Will you be with us? Now, when God answers Moses' request to witness him, to see him, God says this Look, you can't see me. No human can see my face and survive. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of cover your eyes. I'm going to walk past you, and you'll see the mere traces of my glory. You can't see me entirely. Even in that are the themes of separation. Even in this gesture of God saying, I will be with you and I will prove to you that I will be with you, even in the midst of that gesture, there's this discord, this separation. That humanity is not on the same level as God. And because of humanity's sinfulness and brokenness, Humanity is at enmity with God. And guess what? If you put God and humanity in the same room, God is going to win. There are these themes of separation versus unity. Uh, This is Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to be starting in verse 14. So that's actually page 74 in the Pew Bible. And he, that's God, said... My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, that's Moses, said to him, that's God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Go ahead and continue reading on. We're going to be in uh, chapter 34, starting in verse 5. So that that was just the plan, and this is actually when it happens. 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. The word of the Lord. In this passage we see this, this interplay between God offering his presence to his people and the people just rebutting that, pushing against it, having this propensity to sin in such a way that, again, restores them to separation from God. And God is willing to forgive and come with them again, but there's still this friction, this tension. God will go with them. God will be in the midst of them. But full and total reconciliation Standing face-to-face with God is not something that's achieved here. Despite God's grace, despite God's forgiveness, there is still this separation. Now, we're going to get into Mark in just a second, but there's there's the sequence of events that's really important to understand here. God seeks to pass by Moses... So that way Moses can see just the traces of his glory. And then God proclaims his name. Now, you may have noticed when I was reading that, that God said much more than his name. He also stated the, the accolades of, of himself as God. He says, the Lord, and that's in all caps. So that's the, the holy name of God, which we often say Yahweh, which effectively just means me. We commonly say, I am Because in Exodus 3, God says, I am that I am. Effectively, it means, God says, I cannot be relegated to a name because I'm like nothing else. I am me. But attached to that name, I am, he strings along these qualities. And if you will make this leap with me, he strings along with his name the gospel of his name. He passes by and says, I am that I am. I am God. And he says things that effectively mean that I am righteous, I am not going to overlook sin, but I'm merciful. And these go part and parcel with God's name because it is who he is. In, in the Hebrew culture, somebody's name is not just their actual first name you use to refer to them. It is their reputation, it is their accolades, it is their qualities and characteristics, it is what they have to offer those around them. And that's what God says he is. I am that I am. I am me. I am God. I am righteous. I am merciful. I am not going to overlook sin. That is the gospel of Exodus 33 and 34. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6 now that we got that context in. We're going to begin in verse 45 and we're going to close out the chapter. That's verse 45. 56 in the Pew Bibles the hard covers it's page 842 the way Mark writes his version of Jesus's biography or the, what we call the Gospels is he intentionally alludes to the Old Testament he uses familiar imagery and familiar language to implicate Jesus with the God of the Old Testament and it may, and today, this is most helpful because we have this fallacy of thinking that the God of the Old Testament is the mean version of God, but then Jesus came as the kinder version of God. But what Mark seeks to do is to show that there's continuity here, that this is threaded through, that the God of the Old Testament is not the meaner, more angry God, and Jesus is the softer one, but it's rather that the, in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, God himself was obscured. That God himself was obscured by the brokenness of humanity, of people. Jesus, we we pray for our brother right now. We thank you, God, that he is welcome here. Pray peace and rest upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. The God of the Old Testament is not a different God from Jesus. He's a God who is obscured by the conditions of humanity. And when Jesus comes, the Bible says that he's the express image of the invisible God, which means that he is the unobscured, total, free, unhindered image of who God actually is, no longer obscured by the condition of humanity. So Mark seeks to show that continuity, to use the same language of the Old Testament, to use the same imagery to say that this Jesus is God. The self same God that we've studied for millennia in the Old Testament. Let's read it. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment, or that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The word of the Lord. We're going to go through this in chunks, as I like to often do. Verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Mark uses this word immediately, constantly. He wants to quickly work through the narrative. Now again, Mark is not trying to tell this Totally exhausted biography about jesus. He's trying to get out these points that show us who jesus is Remember the, the the thesis of the book of mark is that mark is trying to prove that jesus is the son of god the christ the messiah So quickly he moves from last week's story or the story we studied last week rather to this one Now, what was the story that we read last week? It was the miracle commonly referred to as the feeding of the five thousand, in that event, Jesus showed his disciples um, that complications that arise from following Jesus are the very things that Jesus Himself will solve. the The book of Matthew tells the same story. In the book of Matthew, Matthew seems to imply that Jesus has just heard that his cousin John the Baptist has been beheaded, and so what Jesus wants to do is to get away by himself to pray. So he wanders out to a desolate place to get by himself, to pray, to give his disciples some rest because they would just gone out on a missionary journey. But when he goes out and he does that, people recognize him and they follow him out there. Now. By the very design of where this place is located it is a desolate place it's the middle of nowhere there's nothing for these people to eat and so the disciples say hey Jesus you need to send these people away they got to eat and Justin said last week that you know maybe this is because the disciples themselves needed something to eat and they're just you know projecting their (laughs) concerns on other people and it's probably true in in that story Jesus shows his disciples that rather than sending people away, he'd rather keep them close and provide and protect them himself. And then the disciples leave with 12 baskets of food for themselves. And these baskets, you know, Justin said they were like fanny pack size. So picture the 80s. And so, so they have their own food. And they, they have themselves been communicated this story about how Jesus protects, that Jesus provides Now, Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, Bethsaida. Jesus is done. With this miracle the night is over he's taught the people he's fed them and now the next place they want to go to is bethsaida and it says that he makes them get into the boat now the word that's used in there is literally translated he bent up them to go into their boat and go to bethsaida you could you could accurately say without being irreverent say that jesus twisted their arms and forced them to get on the boat to leave now, now, why would he do that? Now, you, uh, this is purely s- speculation, so you can, you can do that yourself. But at least one qualif- quality of this is that Jesus wants to get by himself to pray, to process his grief, to come before his Father and work this out. You remember, Jesus, prior to coming to this earth, was forever in communion with his Father. It's, it's in the presence of his Father where he receives comfort and peace, guidance, and direction. Yet, Jesus has been wanting to do this from the beginning of the day, and now it's almost evening, and he's still not gotten the time. So he forces his disciples to get on the boat, go over to Bethsaida, I will meet you guys over there, and he says, that um, Mark says, while he, Jesus, dismissed the crowd. Think, think of the service of that. Jesus is always the divine servant every single time when the, when the disciples say Jesus these people got to eat send them away Jesus says no you know what I'm going to miraculously provide for them I'm going to do it you guys just hand it out I I will do this and when when the next big task is to send away all these people Jesus says you guys just hop in the boat I'm going to do it I will do it I'll stay behind I will do it he's he's going to do these farewells himself and we're going to continue to see in this chapter that Jesus will continue to serve his people, dispensing himself constantly. It will always be at Jesus' own expense that he services other people for the well-being of those whom he loves. Chapter, uh, verse 46 says, And after he had taken leave of them, so that means when, when everybody was farewelled and gone, he went up to the mountain to pray, Finally, this is what Jesus was after. So now the the opportunity at long last he has to pray. He finally gets to do that. He goes to the top of the mountain to pray, or on top of a hill to pray. And again, I, I strongly believe by the implication of Matthew in chapter 14 that is because he's trying to process this grief that his dear friend, even his cousin, has just been executed, beheaded. Verse 47 says, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. This is an ominous foreshadowing. Hear it again, and I'll do it in a spooky voice for you. This is for you guys. I'm here to serve you guys. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Do you hear that the stage is being set? For, for something bad to happen. It's like in a suspense movie when the light's cut off or the hero gets accidentally locked in a closet or something like that. Something bad is about to happen. Something is coming. So the sun goes down. It's evening. The boat is out on the sea. Jesus is by himself on the land. There's separation here. The themes that we were studying in, in Exodus 33 are also present here. Separation versus unity. Unity. It's dark. The disciples are out on the sea in a boat. Jesus is alone on the land. And the separation between this man, these men and their miracle-making leader has put them in a potentially precarious situation. They're vulnerable now because they're not protected by their rabbi. This is a recipe for disaster. Verse 48 says, He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So here, here's the conflict. A great wind is blowing, and they're rowing against it. So this is, this is a big, massive windstorm. You, you don't necessarily have to picture lightning and hail and all sorts of stuff, but there's heavy wind, and in Matthew's version of this, he says that the wind is sweeping up the waves. Now, the disciples have their course. They're supposed to go to Bethsaida, so they are continuing to try to hold the course, to follow Jesus's direction, but the, the movement of the wind, the storm is pushing them the opposite way, and they're working really hard. There's no knowing which direction they are going, right? That's for you, Andy. At, at any rate, um, so I'm just going to pause for a second. We can wonder where the storm comes from, right? There's a few different ideas. Maybe, maybe this is just mindless nature, these disciples are at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or maybe this is demonic conflict, like Satan sent this to hinder the disciples from doing the very thing that God has told them to do, that Jesus has directed them to do. Or maybe maybe God sent this, so that way he can show himself faithful through this. Out of those three options, I'm gonna go ahead and shoot down one of them. I don't think that this is God. I don't think that God sent this storm because this storm was against the disciples, was pushing them away from the destination. Who was the one who told them to go to Bethsaida? Jesus. And this wind is pushing them away from Bethsaida. God is not divided. God will not tell us to go somewhere and then resist us from going that direction just so that way he can show himself powerful. That would be cruel. So that leaves two options and I don't think you have to resolve them either this is demonic, satanic resistance, or this is just the mindlessness of of nature. Either of those two things, the point remains the same. There are forces at work here that are contrary to these disciples doing what God has called them to do, what God wants them to do, what God has directed them to do. So meanwhile, Jesus is alone by himself up on the hill and he sees them He sees them, and they're making headway painfully. They're struggling. They're struggling at the oars, and he sees them. This could be miraculous. Maybe he has a vision of them, or maybe from his vantage point, he can actually visibly see them. Now, this creates two options for Jesus. Now, stick with me with this. He's got two options. All day, he's been wanting to be by himself with his father to pray. He can stay there, and it wouldn't be any selfishness on his part. His opportunity to pray is well-earned. His desire to pray and process his grief for his father is good. He has every defensible reason to stay up on the hill. Or the second option is he can descend from the hill or better, better yet, he could condescend, step down from his heights, and join the people he loves at their level. As you might guess, Just like when Jesus chose to feed the multitude rather than to send them away, or just like how Jesus chose to personally bid the crowds farewell rather than making his disciples do it, Jesus also chooses to leave his spot on the hill, to come down and to be with his people, to help his people who he loves. Verse 48 continues, says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night is about 3 a.m. This has been a massively long day. Despite Jesus' well-earned opportunity to to, to pray, a very tired but incredibly gracious Jesus steps down from his heights, and he came to them. That separation, that ominous foreshadowing, starting to close. Jesus is on his way to them. And how does he come? He comes to them walking on the sea. Now, in, in order for us to understand the full gravity of this, and of course this is, this is a miracle, but to understand the full contextual gravity of this, we should take into consideration that in Jewish Israelite culture, the sea or the waters are symbols of chaos and untamable chaos and even death Sailors knew that at any time they set out on the sea, they were at the mercy of its unchangeable humor. and one moment, the sea could be safe and calm, and the very next, you could be clamoring to survive. And so in Israelite poetry, even waters in the sea are used metaphorically to talk about the overwhelming troubles of life. Like waves crashing over people and swallowing them up, drowning them in the black depths of oblivion. In Psalm 69... David says this, deliver me from the sinking, from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Waters often being a sign of chaos. Waters often being a sign of inescapable despair. Now, appropriately because of that, in the Old Testament, God's sovereignty, God's power is sometimes illustrated by him being described as over the waters. In Psalm 29, David is looking out on a storm, and in awe of the sheer power of, the na- of nature itself, David compares the power of, of, of the storm to the majesty of God. I- I'm going to read it to you and feel free to just listen. I know watching someone read something off a page isn't very exciting, but listen to it and imagine it. Ascribe to the Lord, O O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This is the part where he starts talking about the storm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give his strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. In that passage, Psalm 69, I, I, I skipped a few verses as well, God's safety, his, his cavalier posture being seated above this chaos in the midst of this storm, it displays his power. His posture displays his power. There's this storm happening all around, and it's just that's who God is. He's seated in the midst of that because his power is likened to the storm. Job, in Job chapter 9, describes God as he who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. Or the New King James Version says, he alone spreads out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. When Jesus came to his disciples walking on the water, he's displaying to them a power, that's even greater than their deepest fear. His posture of calm, being not even a bit threatened by the storm that's been pushing at them for hours. They're afraid for their very lives. Yet he comes just walking along, unfazed, unhindered. This is not merely a miracle to impress. This is a miracle to display that Jesus's power is greater. The end of verse 48 says he meant to pass them by. Now, if we didn't read Exodus 33 prior to this, we might think that Jesus doesn't really care about them. And he's like, hey, I told you guys I'll meet you in Bethsaida, so I'll, same thing, I'm going to head over there. You guys keep doing what you're doing. I mean to pass you by. But That's, that's not what Mark is saying here. Mark is again evoking Old Testament language and Old Testament imagery to implicate Jesus with a God with which they're familiar from the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, just like the God of Exodus 33, has this design to display to these people in trouble that they can trust him by revealing to them who he is. Now, the God of the Old Testament did this by passing by Moses and letting Moses see a trace of his glory. And then he proclaimed his name and and lauded his accolades. I am that I am. I am God. I am merciful, but I I will not overlook sin. Jesus does a very, very similar thing here. The sequence of events is very similar, but it's got a twist at the end. Before, before, I, I, before I go into that, that name, I am, we talked about this earlier, it's God, it's God just saying, me, just me. And the more we know about God, the more that we can trust him just being himself, that we know that he himself is the answer to all of our concerns, all of our fears. Jesus will dawn a a similar name in this passage. Verse 49 says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. That may sound silly, but it's not less rational than thinking, Hey, that's our rabbi walking on the water, so don't judge. Um, Right? Have you ever thought of that? Um, So, Immediately, Jesus speaks to them. Now, this is the proclamation part, where God said, I am, I am that I am, I am God, I am merciful, I will not overlook sin. This is what Jesus says, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. What Jesus says is effectively the same as this holy divine title of God, where God says, my holy name is just me, I am. Jesus does a similar thing. He just says, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the God of Exodus 33, who, who I believe is also Jesus, I believe is pre-incarnate Jesus, and we can talk about that another time, but his gospel is one of righteousness, that his holiness is, has set him apart from humanity, and that his holiness will continue to set him apart from humanity because he is a just and righteous God, and that is a good thing. But Jesus' gospel, which is not a departure from that gospel, but a fulfillment of this gospel, is much simpler. He says this, I am. Don't be afraid. His gospel is simpler because it's direct and it's personal and it's relational yes this is the Jesus who brings along with him the power of the storm walking along the waters entirely unfazed but what's he coming to do he's coming to just be with you so that way you don't have to be afraid verse 51 says he got into the boat with them this is the major twist of the story This is the major twist of the story. In Exodus 34, God passes by Moses. Moses gets a glimpse of the trace of God's glory, but then God continues walking. Moses does not get to see more than God promised. This is the twist of the story. Jesus meant to pass them by. He proclaims his name, and then he got into the boat with them. This is the fulfillment of what God wants. This is the fulfillment of who God is. No longer obscured by the brokenness of humanity, but Jesus championing over the brokenness of humanity is this. He shows us his glory. He proclaims his name. He proclaims his gospel. And then he joins us. He comes down from the hill. He condescends. And he will always come down the hill. That's in his nature. It's a perfect display of who Jesus is. This is who God is. He is this fierce and mighty God. But do not misunderstand. Just because his fierceness and his might could destroy us in an instant, doesn't mean that's what he wants to do. Because the greatest fulfillment of his will is Jesus. And Jesus does not pass by. He gets into the boat. He's humbled himself. He's reduced himself and gotten into the boat. And when he gets into the boat, the wind ceases immediately. The wind stops, the storm stops, because nothing can stand against Jesus. Now, the the disciples are utterly astounded, the ESV says. But here's the thing. It's because of this. They're astounded because they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves and fish. They didn't get it. And so that's why they were astounded. Not just because Jesus was walking on the water, which is undoubtedly impressive, not just because Jesus stopped the storm, which is undoubtedly impressive. They were astounded because they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves and the fish. And what did we say that the, the meaning behind that was? Was for Jesus to show that I will miraculously resolve the complications that come along with walking with me if you will walk with me if you will strive to be with me the complications that come along with that are my business and i will fix them now if the if the disciples fully understood that then this wouldn't have surprised them that much it is his nature but they didn't understand it and jesus kindly and mercifully gives them another go gives them another around and shows them this is who I am. Don't be afraid. Take heart. It's me. I'm here. And you know what? I'm going to get in with you. Verses 53 to 56 is kind of an epilogue to this. It it gives a quick summary of what Jesus' ministry continued to be. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it, were made well. To tie this up, We see Jesus' ministry at large. He feeds thousands of people. We see his ministry intimately. He goes out, condescending to be with his friends, to give them courage. And then on a widespread, this. People recognize him. He continues to serve people. He continues going out. And there's this interesting bit here that says that people heard that if you touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, that... They'll be healed. In, in, in Mark 4, the, the woman with the, uh, with, with the bleeding, this, she does this. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And where that comes from is in, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, says that the Son of Righteousness, S U N, of righteousness, will come with healing in his wings. And, and that word wings could also just be translated as in his borders, in his edges. People are like, oh, the edge of his clothes and they reach out and they touch him, and they are actually healed by this. This, again, is Mark saying, Jesus bears the qualifications of the Messiah. He's the one foretold in the Old Testament. He's not a departure of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Mark is further belaboring that Jesus is. There's this... There's this theme in in these passages, in Exodus, and also here, and really throughout the entirety of the Bible, that there's this chasm, this separation between us and God that's irreconcilable. We can't cross the barrier. But Jesus can, and he does, and he does so by the measure of of his humility. That just like in this story, which is a perfect, perfect summary of the gospel— that he comes down, he condescends, joins at the level, makes the problems of people that he loves his own problem and resolves them, closing that separation, reconciling, bringing unity, restoring relationship. Now, so so these, these disciples in the story, Jesus was earshot away. At any moment they wanted to, they could call upon him, ask him questions, ask them to fix things for them, and he would show up and do it. That must have been incredible. must have been amazing to have Jesus in the same room and you could trust him so much that you see a problem and you don't know if Jesus can solve it, but you know that Jesus can do stuff, so you just ask him. And he does it? But here's the kicker, you guys. As incredible as that must have been for the disciples, Scripture contends that what we Christians have today is an even deeper unity than the disciples had when they were walking with Jesus. When Jesus was physically with them, he was bound by space and time. When, he, when they were bringing people to him to be healed, they had to wait till they reached him or wait till he reached them. But when we call out to Jesus, he's available to us instantaneously. Scripture says that as a deposit to assure us of the salvation we have in Christ, God has given us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are never alone in our proverbial boat. God is always with us. Jesus, in this passage, displays, and today he proves his title Emmanuel, which means God with us. No longer a separation. Romans 8, especially verses 18 through 31, is an incredible cross-reference, parallel passage for this story. It even talks about the brokenness of nature, groaning for the restoration of all things. But, but just like what the, what the disciples experienced in the boat in Romans 8, Paul says, if God is with us, who can be against us? The wind against us? No. God is with us. In verse 38 of Romans 8, Paul says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That separation is no longer a problem because of what Jesus has achieved on the cross. If if you're a Christian this morning, again, God has given you the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that everything is going to be successful and easy? No, it doesn't, but it means that every brokenness will be resolved. It doesn't mean that it will always be an easy ride across the lake doing what Jesus has directed you to do, but it does mean it will be resolved. Because Jesus is God with us. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. We have two commandments from this passage. Jesus has given us two directions because he is God. Take heart and do not be afraid. That has to be the filter and the lens through which we see every direction we have from Jesus. Whether it's within our prayer time and God saying, you know that there's this addictive, sinful behavior that you're doing in your life and you need to be done with that now, God is with us. Even if it seems like those things are insurmountable, God is with us. Don't be afraid. Take heart instead. Because him, because me, because it is, because he is, because it is I. God has put a ministry on your heart that seems far too big. He is with us. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I know we can often be afraid of the roads ahead of us, especially when we're afraid of our own weaknesses, our own insufficiencies, our own brokenness, our own inadequacies. That's what the disciples were experiencing here, that they couldn't get past the wind. But if you're a Christian, I wanna draw your attention to a, a, a very special detail in the story that we just read together. No one invited Jesus into the boat. I've heard very, very great sermons on this passage, I'm not shooting them down, where the application is, invite Jesus into your proverbial boat. Your proverbial boat. That's, that's fine, but that's not what happens here. Jesus gets in, he just does. Our command is not to invite Jesus and welcome in. Our command is just to take heart and don't be afraid. Let him send. Let him do. And really to embrace the joining, the, the abolition of that separation. But if you're not a Christian this morning, it's my privilege to introduce you to this passage because it so adequately describes Jesus in every perfect way. He sits so highly above us in righteousness, in holiness. And if he wanted to, his well-earned authority over all of creation, over all of the universe, means that he never has to come off that throne. Even an equal place with God is something that he could keep for himself. But instead, he comes down the hill. He always comes down the hill. It's who he is. And he instead of permitting us to be separated from our God, himself partially separated himself from God so that way he could carry us into that relationship. You don't have to be alone anymore. You don't have to be abandoned anymore. You don't have to push and push and push when everything's pushing against you. Because Jesus is, and Jesus is God with us This is available this morning. Now, when I said that the believers don't have to invite Jesus into the proverbial boat, I I think also appropriately, non-believers, this this is your opportunity to make some room, make some room in your heart to, to accept this gift that Jesus wants to give to you. Because I'll leave you with this. Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord on high, sees his friends painfully struggling against the wind and he comes down jesus sees you this morning jesus sees you this morning and although i do not know what your struggles are and although i may not even take them as seriously as you would if you told me about them jesus sees the people he loves painfully struggling for the wind is against them and jesus comes down the hill he always comes down the hill he always comes down the hill it is who he is and when god is for us what can be against us this is the god enthroned above the floods hallelujah let's pray Jesus, you are fierce and mighty, and we would be wrong to replace your fierceness and your might with just your kindness. The power of your kindness is that it exists within the fierceness, within the might. You have room for your kindness. And although you could Pour out on us the full weight of your wrath, the full power of your might. You humble yourself. You come down the hill. You always come down the hill. And this morning, amongst my brothers and sisters, believers and unbelievers alike, I look to you. There are things in my life I think that you've directed me toward. And I'm afraid that I can't beat them. I'm afraid I can't get to the destination. S- something's against me. But you are with us. And if you are with us, who can be against us? We love you, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you. We adore you, Jesus.